um, how are we all on this long weekend? Isn't the weather just perfect? I was looking out the window on Friday at work. We have this little kind of, I don't know what they're called, picture windows, like up the top. And I could just see this blue sky. I thought, oh, it's so nice. Lisa, please hope, hang around for the weekend. And it did. Um, so that's good. So um, I didn't tell Ben this, but I wanted to just um, thank you all for praying for us while we were in India. And I wanted to just give a really quick recap of um, how our time went in India. Um, some of you may know we went um, over to India in well, pretty much all of January and, and a few extra days and um, we do charity work there. So I wanted to thank you all for praying for us. Um, we had a great time when we were there. Um, we saw a lot of family. We've got a huge family. So pretty much anyone that's vaguely related in any way, shape or form is your auntie, uncle, cousin. So it's enormous. But the good thing is that they, they don't call them by names, they just call them auntie, uncle and cousin. So it was great because I remembered everyone's name. Um, so we had a really great time um, seeing family. We hadn't been for a long time because of um, COVID and all the rest of it. So it was really good. Um, in terms of our charity work, we were able to visit some of the people we support, some of the widows, go and see them, how they're going, um, some of the children, some of the villages we support. And that was really good. There was plenty of opportunities for Ashok to do some preaching and teaching, um, which he enjoyed. Um, and um, we, we've got a land development there that we're building. Um, we're starting up a Bible college soon, um, well, at the moment. So it was really good to get that going. Um, down the bottom is some of the children that have come. They live behind our block of land. Um, and they've just started, just only in the last few weeks or so, They've come and they said, we want, we want to know more, we want you to teach us. So they're starting to come along every day and, and the, the aim with our kind of tuition centres is that we, um, we call them a bridge builder kind of centre. So the aim is that we just build a little bit of a bridge rather than take the children from their homes and put them in a hostel. If we can just connect with them in their own homes, with their own families, just support them to, to look after them a lot of the families that are literate. So if we can you know, meet needs such as providing a bit of education, tuition, then um, they can happily stay in their families but still get that extra that they need and trying to get the families involved in that as well. So getting you know, the mums to come along and cook, a bit, cook some eggs or something for them to have something while they're there. So that's that one. Um, that's our building, the pink one's our building that we're gonna be, we're just starting up the Bible College in the second story and the one that's under construction is just a bit of accommodation so that they can students can come and stay there um, that's some of the pastors that we support down the bottom um, not all of them we have some in different areas so we went and met them in different places um, and they're all supported by us to go out into their local villages and just to support the villages to share um, jesus with them um, but also just to be there as a person that can help them connect with things and, and to be there to support families. Um, this is a, um, these are, on that picture there is a couple of the pa um, pastors that are running, going to be running the Bible College. Um, and these two on the side are two of the students um, that we've got coming to our college. They've just started along. And I just want to give you a little testimony about Sunil, which is the one in the stripy jumper. He's a young 18 year old and he's from a village that's really far from us. So it's about um, probably over 250 kilometres away, um, which by bus in India is 
a whole day bus trip. Um, so he is 18, he's from a really poor family. His family gave him about 400 rupees and said, go to the main town, get a job and start to work. Um, so he did, um, 400 rupees is it's around about $8. So he came um, and it, when you get a job in India, you work for a month and then they pay you. So he got a job in a little restaurant serving food. So what happened, and this is really God's hand at work here, is um, one day these other two, they went to have lunch. They were out and about doing some things and they just stopped in this little hotel to have lunch. And Sunil came and served them lunch. And just as he was serving the lunch to them, one of their phone rang. And I don't know if you remember, years ago we used to be able to, well, it was really popular to put your own ringtones on your phone and you'd pick your popular songs and your phone would ring. So that's a big thing in India. So they had, um, one of their phones rang and it was this Christian ringtone. And Sunil said to them, he goes, oh, are you a Christian? And they said, yeah, we're Christian. And he said, oh, I'm a Christian as well. And so it easily could have stopped there. Um, okay, thanks for the lunch, off you go. But they, so they started talking to him, where are you from? We are from here, we're, we're just about to start up a Bible college. And they even went so far as to exchange phone numbers with him. So the end of the month comes around, they thought nothing much more of that. Um, and one of the men got a phone call from Sunil and he was really upset and he said, I've worked for a month and they didn't pay me and now I've got, I've got nowhere to go, I've got no money. He had, you know, maybe $2 or something in his pockets, not even enough to get the bus fare home. And he said, I don't know what to do, I don't know anyone here. So I, I rang, like I rang you, can you help me? Um, and so he went and helped him, picked him up, brought him back to our um, place there and he, he was talking to him and, and then Sunil said, I would really like to study at the Bible College. Um, and so he's our first student there and that's really what we wanted to do is, is to not have it open for people to pay and to, you know, so if you can afford to, you come and pay and you study. Um, we want it to be open for people who can't afford to and will never get the opportunity to. So we're more... Um, hand-picking it, if you say, from, from villages and remote areas that will never have that opportunity to kind of equip them to go out. So he's our first student there. Um, but I just want to thank you all for your prayers and your support because this is the type of thing that you're supporting with us. So please continue to pray for us, continue to support um, what we do. It, it really is making a difference. Now, as you all know, we've spent the last few months going through Romans 12. Um, and I don't know about you, but I've been learning a lot. Um, we're really so blessed by everybody who's taken the time to pull it apart verse by verse and, and sow it into our lives. It's really helped to better understand what Paul's trying to get across in Romans 12. He's managed to jam-pack so much into this chapter, I know for sure that I'll need to go back over it in order to kind of um, digest it and apply it more in my life. Um, but I'm blessed today to share with you Romans 12, 19 to 21, which is the end of Romans 12. Um, so we're going to get into that, but I'm just going to open with a prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you be with us today. I pray that you guide what I say and that you open our ears and our hearts to understand and to hear what you want us to understand and hear. I pray that you be with us and help us, help our lives to, and hearts to open up and be able to take in and apply what you've taught us in your scriptures. We ask in your name. Amen. So Romans 12, verse 19 to 21. 
Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge, I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Do not let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. I like this passage. It's simple to understand. It's succinct. It, it can't be taken in any other way. It's, it's really straight to the point. Um, and like we've done with Romans 12, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull it apart verse by verse just to help us understand better what God wants us to see in this scripture that's been written by Paul. Now, much of what's written in these verses has been mentioned before in the Bible. They're not new ideas. They're not random thoughts, uh, never mentioned again. They're truths that God really wants to get into, our, get into us and get into our spirit. And that's why they're repeated throughout the scriptures. So we'll start first at verse 19. Now I've put three different versions there, um, but they're pretty much all the same. But you'll notice a few key words. So the Amplified says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave the way open for God's wrath and his judicial righteousness. For it's written in scripture, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The NLT says, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. The scriptures say, I will take revenge, I will pay them back. And the English Standard says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So the beginning of it, that dear friends or beloved, that's how God speaks to us. He, he loves us, so that's the way he addresses us. Um, you know, when you write a letter, you write, dear so-and-so, or, or if you're you know, not as close with them, you might write to. So this is the way God addresses us. He says, he calls us dear friends and beloved. Avenge, av avenge is a word that we don't use a lot anymore, except for in the new movies, the Avengers and all of that, but that's different. Um, but it literally means to inflict harm in return for a wrong done to oneself or another, or to take satisfaction for an injury by inflicting punishment on the offender. And vengeance, it's, punish, it's the punishment that's inflicted. So it's retribution exacted for an injury or wrong. So vengeance, vengeance are closely related. To avenge is not always bad. And to take such satisfaction for injuries done to to society is both lawful and proper by a magistrate. They are the ones who can avenge a wrong. To take satisfaction for injuries done by sin to the universe is the province of God, and that's the difference here. So Paul here, he's commanding individual Christians to avoid a spirit and purpose of revenge. The command here in this passage to not avenge ourselves means that we are not to take it out of the hands of God or the hands of the law and inflicted ourselves. It's well known that when there is no laws, the business of vengeance is pursued in a cruel and unrelenting manner. Natural instinct is to answer hatred with hatred and kindness with kindness. There'll always be people who we think well of and we like, and for no other reason that we think that they think well of us and like us. Such love is really selfishness. In the same way, dislike and alienation on the part of another naturally reproduces itself in our own minds. For example, think of a dog. You've got a dog there. If you stretch your hand to the dog to pat it, it will put its neck up and want to be, pat, want to be patted. But if you raise a stick 
to that dog, the same dog that stretched its neck up to be patted, it will snap at the stick. So, it, in the same way, we react to the measure of kindness that's, or hatred that's put towards us. So if you, if you show kindness to something, you get a reaction of kindness back. If you show hatred to something, you get a reaction of hatred back. It requires a really strong effort to master this instinctive feeling in us. And yet this is what the verse is telling us. It goes beyond our natural tendencies. Yet Paul is trying to teach us the importance of this principle. Christianity seeks the power of the laws and in cases that do not require the interference of laws, it demands that we bear injury with patience and, and commit the cause unto God. In Leviticus 19 verse 18 it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. Deuteronomy 32 verse 35 says, It's mine to avenge, I will repay. In due time their foot will slip, their day of disaster is near and the doom will rush upon them. See, God's wrath is not the angry, unjustified anger that we see in many situations in the world today. In our everyday lives and the things we see on the news, the wrath that's talked about here is, designed as, is defined as justifiable hatred, that, that kind of anger that we see in the world or by implication, punishment. What God is teaching us here is that even when we're wronged, as Christians, we're not to take the law into our own hands to write or vindicate ourselves. And Jesus taught us this um, many times in the scripture, such as the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18. But remember that Paul knew that this is difficult for us to, to uphold this, it's difficult. And so that's why he wrote it. It was relevant to the people at the time and it's still relevant to us today. He spoke so clearly of it. The wrath that he speaks of is that of God. It's to give place to, give place to God's wrath means to leave room for it and not to take the work out of God's hands. The idea is that instead of meeting our own anger, we leave them to meet the ven tremendous vengeance of God no, that's not the idea. It, God is not set out to destroy them um, with, with an unjustifiable anger. God is the maintainer of moral order in the world and the righting of wrong is to be given to him to deal with. And God himself lives this through sending his son into the world for us. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2 how to live godly lives in society today. He reminds us in 1 Peter 2.23, when Jesus was on earth, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. When I first looked at these scriptures, when Ben gave me these three verses, when I looked at them, a story came to mind. Um, and it's, I think, a story that really shows these, this verse in particular in um, put into practice. Um, it's a true story of a family, an Australian family called the Staines family and they were missionaries in India. So Graham Staines worked in Odisha which is where we now um, have our charity work as well and he worked there um, from 1965 as part of an evangelical missionary organisation. 
um, in a leprosy home and he cared for people who had leprosy. Um, he looked after tribal people who lived in poverty um, and in that area there's a lot of very, very poor people who live in um, quite acute poverty. Years later, 1981, his wife Gladys came over to help with the missionary work and eventually, two years later, they married. They had three children and they stayed in India working through that area. And over the years there, Graham assisted to translate part of the Bible into the local language. He spoke fluently in um, Oriya, which is the language there. Um, and through their work and their kindness and acceptance and service to the poor people, many people came to know Christ. But what happened was after many years, some of the Hindu groups alleged that they were being, that the other poor people were being forcibly converted into Christianity. Although many people did become Christians, Hindu people and others, it was never forced and with all the trials that went to, to part later on, they, they realised that none of this was ever forced. So in 1999, Staines attended a jungle camp, which was an annual gathering for the Christians of the area to meet at a conference. His wife and daughter stayed at home, and he, uh, but he went with his two sons, aged six and ten, to this jungle camp. Now, January is very cold uh, in that area, so because it was so cold, they slept in their car to keep warm. In the middle of the night, a mob of around 50 people came and attacked the vehicle. They bar barricaded them in the vehicle and set the, set the car on fire. Unable to escape, they were burnt to death. I watched a short video taken several years ago where his wife Gladys gave an interview. She talked about what happened in 1999 and she said, when I found out reports of what had happened, because this was away from where she was staying, and news started to come in, there's been an incident, something's happened. And she said she told her daughter Esther, who was 13 at the time, she said, it seems like we've been left alone. And she says, that's how I broke the news to my daughter. But straight after that I said, but we will forgive, won't we? And she replied, yes, mummy, we will forgive. And those words, I will forgive, she tells in this interview, was what started the healing process. Eventually, those who committed the murders were condemned and sentenced to prison. And when looking at this verse in Romans 12, 19, the first thing I thought of was Gladys Stones. After her husband and son were murdered, her daughter and her remained in Orissa and continued to care for the leprosy patients uh, and the poor there for another five years before returning to Australia. There was a lot of um, things that went to trial around the time, but in the affidavit before the commission on the death of her husband and her sons, she said, the Lord God is always with me to guide me and help me to try and accomplish the work of Graham. But sometimes I wonder why Graham was killed and what also made his assassins behave in such a brutal manner on the night of the 22nd of January, 1999. But she goes on to say, it is far from my mind to punish the persons who are responsible for the death of my husband Graham and my children, but it is my desire and hope that they would repent and be reformed. There's since been a book written of his life and a film made, um, and that was a few years ago. It's titled the, the Least of These, and I encourage you to read the book or watch the film or watch something, an interview on YouTube um, with, uh, about Gladys Steins because the story is really incredible. 
it's encouraging to learn of her forgiveness and trust of God in this terrible situation. But what always fascinated me about this story was Gladys's attitude. It's exactly what this verse is telling us. She did not seek to avenge herself for the pain, the grief and the trauma of what happened to her family. She left it to the Lord. And equally importantly, she forgave them. And that's what this verse means to me. It's a verse on trust. It's about putting our trust completely in God, our faith in God, forgiving others' wrongs and allowing the Lord to deal with them as he sees fit and trusting that he will do what is right and that we don't need to. When we forgive, we don't allow that bitterness to take seed in our life. Matthew 5.44 says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And we've learned throughout Romans 12 so far, bless those who persecute you and seek to live in harmony with one another. The second verse, verse 20, if we move on, it says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on his head. Now, this idea is not a new idea in the Bible. This passage is almost identical to one found in Proverbs 25, which says exactly the same thing. If your enemy is hungry, give him food. If he's thirsty, give him water. By doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. So this, this Romans 12.20 gives us two key points. The first one is the way to promote peace is to do good even to enemies. When I first looked at this um, verse, I immediately thought of the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, and it might be a parable that many of you are familiar with. So I started to look into it, what can, what can I associate with it, what can I draw out of that? But as I looked into it, what I realised is, is in the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus said, whenever you do this to a stranger, you do it unto me. Now, the difference between a stranger in Matthew 25 and this verse in Romans 12.20 and Proverbs 25 is that in these verses, it's specifically written if your enemy is hungry, not a stranger. It says enemy. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it much easier to give to a stranger than to give to an enemy. It's much easier to give something to someone that you don't have a bias against, who has never done anything wrong to you, than to someone who's offended you and hurt you in the past. But Paul specifically mentions here enemy, and thus the stage is set. The challenge is put forward. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him water. I think of in... TV dramas and look no judgment here but I like the medical dramas um, and I watched one episode the other day and they saved the life of this man you know it's all dramatic and there's always heaps of doctors right there and they they saved the life of this man um, but in the end it came out that that man that they saved was a bad person he'd done some really bad things and at the end of the episode the doctors are standing there kind of talking to each other and they stood there taking it in and one said to the other, did we do the right thing saving his life? Because it, it was you know, hanging in the balance, they could have not done it and he would have died, but they saved his life. And the other doctor said, our job is not to judge, it's to save lives. And it reminds me many times, I'm a nurse and I've you know, 
16 years worked at the, at the RA, and I've seen, I've seen a lot, I've looked after a lot of different people. When we look after a patient, we look after the patient regardless of um, our own prejudice and beliefs. I've looked after bad people, I've looked after many criminals for different offences. Now, I don't need to like what they do, I don't need to even like the person, but I have to give an acceptable standard of care regardless of what I think. For this reason, as nurses, when we look after criminals or prisoners, for the most part, we don't know what their crime is. Sometimes when I work with nurses, um, particularly newer ones, they often ask me, I wonder what they did. Maybe I should try and look it up. I wonder what, it, what they did. But I've always said to them, it doesn't matter what they did. In fact, it's better not to know because once you know, that prejudice will influence the way you look after them from that point forward. I remember being in nursing handover at the beginning of a shift um, a couple of years ago and they handed over some of the different patients and we get, we get all sorts um, and they hand over, you know, the, the man in that room, he's a consultant, which is like the most senior of doctors, uh, he was from a different hospital, he's a consultant, you know, so make sure, you get a bit of extra TLC, make sure you do this and make sure you do that for him and, and this and that. Now I'm someone who speaks my mind and I have a very dry sense of humour. Um, so. I'm usually pretty quick off the mark as well. So as soon as they said that, I just said, oh, I'll treat him like an IV drug user, which we also get a lot of, <laughs> to which I received quite a few shocked looking nurse faces, you know. And I said, I'm here to provide a standard of care and this standard doesn't differ based on what the person does, what job they have, what lifestyle they lead. I'm here to to, to look after them and I'll look after them the same. It does not matter. I don't change the way I treat patients based on what they do uh, or what they've done. And you know, it is difficult sometimes, but it's what the Bible teaches us for it's up to God to be the judge. And the important thing is that God is the judge. He will put his judgment on them for the life they have lived. The thing to remember that this is between God and the person. It doesn't involve us. It's up to the person to repent for what they've done wrong. John 3.17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, God will give his perfect judgment, but remember God loves us and wants us all to be saved. And he wants everyone to have the chance to repent. He is a forgiving and loving God. Psalm 76 verse 8 to 9 tells us, You caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to save all the humble of earth. All, not some, all. So not only others. But remember that God will put his judgment not only on them but on us as well. He will judge our behaviour. So we need to make sure that we are keeping our minds right and not being so busy trying to fix and condemn everyone else. James 4.12 remind us that there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbour? But the Bible tells us that he will judge the world in righteousness and execute judgment for the people with equity in Psalms 9.8. Matthew 7 gives a classic example of judgment. Um, in verse 1 to 8, it says, Do not judge or you too will be judged in the same way you judge others. You will be judged with the measure that you use. It will be measured to you. 
Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that little speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks the door be opened. It's normal for us to encounter people that we will not get along with and those we consider as enemies. But it's important to remember that they're important to God too and that God loves each one of us equally. The number one enemy we have in common is Satan and that's where our focus needs to be. He takes form in many ways in the world today and we must be vigilant to not let him lead us to sin. So the people in our lives we consider as enemies, we must ask God to strengthen us and help us forgive and bless one another and so that we can come together to fight the real enemy. Luke 6, 27 and 28 says, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, and Paul is really highlighting here the importance of loving our enemies, giving them their, their needs, their basic needs, food and water. Why? Because it's what God told us to do. In Matthew 5, 43 to 45, it says, You've heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 1 Peter 3.9 tells us, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with a blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. God has called us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us and the verses tell us when we do this, it allows God to be the judge and deal with those who don't listen to him. The second thing in, in this verse is the way to bring a person to repentance is to do good to them. It says, by doing this, you will heap burning coals of fire and shame onto his head. So what does it mean? The heaping of coals, it speaks of divine vengeance. Um, this term, they believe, came from an ancient Egyptian practice um, in which a repentant person would actually carry a bowl of burning embers on their head. Um, and it was a way of showing shame and guilt publicly to other people. By analogy, um, which is what this verse is saying, being kind to an enemy may lead them to feel shame and repentance. Some definitions refer to the burning pain of shame and remorse which the person feels when their hostility is repaid with love. Ever since the time when we as humans became enemies with God, we have also become enemies with one another. Coals of fire are symbolic of pain, but the idea is not that in doing so we're calling down divine vengeance on the person, but Paul is speaking of the natural effect of doing good an enemy, the natural effect of kindness. So it the burning coals would be expressive of agony and the effect of doing this would be effective enough to do, produce pain. But the pain they talk of in this verse is a pain resulting from the feeling of shame and remorse of, and conscience, conviction of evil of their conduct. And these feelings lead the person to repentance. 
So to do this is not only perfectly right, but it's totally desirable. If a person can be brought to reflection and repentance, it should be done, is telling us not to repay evil for evil, but to do good for evil. And it's hard. God acts on this principle continually. He does good to all, even the rebellious. Romans 2.4 tells us, Do you show contempt for the, richness, for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? See, people can resist anger and power, but they cannot resist goodness. It finds its way to the heart and the conscience, and it does its work. And as a result, they are led to repentance. If people acted on the principles that were taught in the Gospels, the world itself would soon be at peace. No one would suffer himself many times to be overwhelmed in this way with coals of fire. If as Christians we treated all unkindness with kindness, all malice with benevolence, all, right with, all wrong with right, then peace would be everywhere. So this leads us into our final verse, verse 21. It says, do not be overcome or conquered by evil, overcome evil with good. A few weeks ago I saw in the media um, some stories regarding some comments made on a program in relation to Jesus. And what was said was terrible. But what has shocked me though more was a response by Christians around the place. There were threats of hurting people, beating people up, threats of violence in response to some comments that were made. And this violence was personal to people um, that might have been involved with the television show or station. And that's what shocked me. Unfortunately, we see these responses often, even by Christians, very publicly. We looked at Romans 12, 17 and 18 last week. Damien spoke of it. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. And if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone and he highlighted the importance of understanding that we are not responsible for the way other people react. We are not responsible for their conduct, but we are answerable for our conduct towards them, and on no occasion are we to commence a conflict with them. It might not be possible to prevent their injuring and opposing us, but it is possible to not begin a contention with them and seek peace and to display a Christian spirit. And as Christians, if we act with this in mind, not to provoke or prolong a controversy when it's commenced, it would put an end to a huge amount of strife that exists in the world. I read one article, one journalist was talking about this incident and had written, kindness is a good thing, respect is too, cultural consideration is important and willingness to acknowledge the belief of others is vital to living in peace and harmony. 17,000 people signed a petition to axe the show. Imagine if they all put in $100 instead of just sign a petition. Imagine what that could do for the poor and hungry, downtrodden and dispossessed, the people Jesus would actually be helping instead of tweeting about it. Otherwise, like the joke at the centre of this storm, it's nothing more than words. And this is what Paul has taught us in Romans. He's finished and summarised with these powerful words, do not be overcome or conquered by evil, but overcome evil with good. And as we finish chapter 12 of Romans, God's reminding us not to be overcome with evil, but to overcome evil with good. There's been so much to learn in Romans 12 about our behaviour and how to guide our lives. 
it's hard when you turn on the news, when you turn on social media, to see the amount of evil in the world. So how can we overcome this evil? In this verse, there's two main things. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. God is reminding us, don't be conquered by evil. Set your mind straight on him because he wants to help us navigate through it. He doesn't want you to pretend that it doesn't exist or walk through it like a horse with blinkers, oblivious to it all. God's telling us, don't let this evil overcome you. Don't be conquered by evil. So I looked up some of the other words for overcome because it says don't be overcome by evil. And some of the words that are used are overwhelmed, speechless, dazed, flabbergasted, gobsmacked, weakened, downtrodden, oppressed, overpowered, choked, incapacitated. Wow, I certainly feel some of these feelings every day when I think about different things and stresses and situations in my own life. But Paul is teaching us here, give those feelings to God. Don't let injury from others cause your principles to be abandoned or your temper to be ruffled. Throughout Romans 12, we've been taught to maintain Christian principles against all opposition and show the power of the gospel through doing this. Show others the loveliness of a better spirit, the power of kindness. And when we do this, we disarm the power that evil has. You don't find this kind of teaching that Paul gives in classic stories and other religious ideas because Christianity alone brings forth this mighty principle with the design to advocate the welfare of mankind by promoting peace, harmony and love. Until the Gospels were taught, this idea of overcoming evil with good never existed. And Damien mentioned this last week. In the Old Testament, it was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It was, if they've done that to you, you do that to them. But what changed? Jesus. Jesus came. He came to set us free from those old laws and show us a new way and a new covenant in him. So what then should we do? James 4, 7 tells us, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from us. When we submit to God, evil doesn't overcome us. It will still try. But submitting to God allows him to help us overcome that evil with good, defeat the evil with good, oppress the evil with good, overpower, incapacitate, choke that evil out with good. And this is what God wants us to do. Evil's not defeated with money or power or a nice car or success or by keeping your head down, pretending it's not happening. Evil is defeated by good. Evil is defeated by that which is decent, moral, virtuous, beneficial, polite, well-behaved, useful, trustworthy, reliable, blameless and worthy the good that we can give to others, the good that Christ has given to us. This defeats evil in the world. Galatians 5 verse 22 to 23 gives us a few of those attributes that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These attributes are the key to overcoming evil. And you know what the best part is? They don't require a degree. They don't require money. They don't require a nice house. They don't require a big property. Patience is letting in a car when you're on your way to work because you know that one car is not going to make you late. It may help them to get to where they're going and make them not late. 
goodness is taking the time to listen to someone's story so that they realise that there are still good people in the world and not everyone's out to harm them. Love is accepting someone for who they are and expecting nothing in return. Kindness is putting extra in your shopping basket if you can afford it to give to someone else who can't afford it. Faithfulness is authenticity. Self-control is Romans 14.1, accepting the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. And how do we do this? How can we manage to overcome evil with good and not be overcome by it? Because through Christ we are more than conquerors. And Romans 8 assures of, of this. It tells us that whatever evil comes of us, nothing can separate us from God's love. It says, what shall we say about such wonderful things as this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died and was raised to life for us and is sitting in the place of honour at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day and being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, angels or demons, fears for today or worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below Nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Jesus came and bled and died for us. We know this as Christians. We remember this and we reflect on it, particularly at Easter time, but all throughout the year. And on this principle, the kindness God shows us through the sacrifice of his son, as Christians we should all be acting in a way to treat our enemies the right way and through this bring the world the knowledge of Jesus. Showing kindness to others, we send forth proof of love to the ends of the earth and through this, evil is overcome. If we were to act on this on an even larger scale, it would be possible to see nations in the world turn to Christ through showing good over evil. Paul has done a marvellous job of writing the book of Romans. When we look back over Romans 12, we see that this chapter is a turning point in the book of Romans. Previously, up to chapter 12, the main emphasis was why we need a saviour and how we can accept him. However, once we start in chapter 12, it began to deal with how a Christian ought to live out their salvation. There have been many practical points to daily Christian living which has been covered in Romans 12 and continue on to the end of Romans as well. So please don't let this study be done on Romans 12 and just move on. Continue to work your way through the next four chapters, 13, 14, 15 and 16 and study the verses so that you can continue to learn more about how to live life daily as a Christian. I encourage you strongly to continue working through Romans. And as you look through, you will see that salvation is through God's grace and not our works. 
However, a natural result of this salvation is to live a life pleasing to God. We've been taught in Romans 12 about the living sacrifice we should present to God, God's plan for our life, spiritual gifts and right attitudes, guiding principles for the Christian life, love, godly character, thoughtfulness and dealing with enemies. Don't stop here. Continue on in Romans and understand the why and how of Christian's life on earth, the sanctification and, of course, Paul's greetings in chapter 16, which on first glance looks a bit like a Logie's acceptance speech. You know, I want to thank mum and my producer. But when you read chapter 16, he's giving, he's giving you instructions of who to greet and show respect. And if you look into those people he's acknowledging there, each of them has a life that's contributed to his work as well. And it can contribute to yours the more you read about them. So I hope you've been blessed through the study of Romans 12. I know I certainly have. And I thank everyone who's prepared studies on this over the last few months. They've been such a blessing. Enjoy the rest of your long weekend.